Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, no surprise, today's discussion is focused on the economy, specifically the significance of tomorrow's jobs report and Washington's effort to curb inflation and bolster domestic production of critical technologies. Joining us to discuss all of this is AAF's Douglas Holtzaken. Doug, it's been a couple of weeks. How have you been? I'm doing great. I took one week to go vacation on the Outer Banks, and uh, that was that was fantastic. But it is always nice to be back. I think we were passing each other. I was coming back from my vacation as you were coming to, <laughs> going to your vacation. So always nice to get away from D.C. in July, though. Let's jump into things um, and start with concerns over the recession. A few weeks ago when we were talking, you previously have said you don't see a big concern in 2022 for a recession. Has the latest data changed your mind at all? Uh, so the latest data are are weaker than I expected. The second quarter GDP report in particular uh, showed uh, very weak spending on both durable, non-durable goods and business spending uh, sort of across the board, equipment, structures. Um, I, I didn't think it would be that weak. Um, I'm still not convinced that this will be classified as a recession when you you look back because the first quarter GDP was quietly very strong. It had these two big anomalies, one on net exports, one on inventories. Um, inside that, we had good household spending. We had strong business spending. And so I don't think the first quarter counts. And so if we've had one quarter of negative GDP growth, which we may have had, it's pretty close, um, then, then, then that's where we are. But we have so many other things that suggest strength. And that's the, the labor market. And we can talk about the jobs report, as you said. But there are also you know, recent reports out of the uh, manufacturing sector that showed July stronger than June, which was the close of the quarter. Uh, a report out of the services sector yesterday that, that showed very strong uh, services growth and employment picking up. So it's, it's hard to, to call it a recession if you don't have a broad and sustained downturn. So far, we've had a narrow and not particularly sustained uh, negative reading. That's cause for concern. Everyone should be concerned, but it but it doesn't mean you know that that we're definitely in a re- in a recession. Yeah, I want to talk about the jobs report. Before that, I mean, earlier this week we got a number um, that showed that job openings are at a nine month low. What, does that say anything about the current state of the economy or the labor market? Yeah, one of the really interesting things uh, is that you know, hey, hey, let's step back. The Fed wants the economy to grow more slowly, so signs of it growing more slowly shouldn't be shocking. Like that that is how we are going to take on inflation, and, and that's a that's beginning to show up in the labor market in particular. Um, the the Fed's rate increases and in slowing the economy should deliver fewer jobs, but because there's such a gap between job openings and the people available, it's the famous you know two jobs for everybody looking for a job. One way to get to get rid of jobs is to get rid of those job openings. You don't actually have to lay people off. You just have to decide not to hire them and those jobs go away. Last month, 600,000 jobs went away because in the most recent data, the job openings were down by 600,000. That's a big number. The typical one month change is about 200,000. So it's three times bigger than that. And the only two months that looked to be substantially bigger were uh, March and April of 2020 when they, the pandemic hit. So we're seeing the labor market cool in a disguised fashion. Jobs will simply not exist that previously did, and they will never be filled. 
So what do you expect to see in tomorrow's jobs report? And then also in next week's CPI report? Well, I expect in the jobs report, we'll continue to see additional jobs. I don't think we'll see 400,000. We'll probably have somewhere in the vicinity of one to 200,000 jobs. Um, I don't expect to see a substantial change in the unemployment rate, if any at all, because we really haven't seen ev big evidence of um, uh, layoffs or anything like that. And so I think it's going to be a sort of ho-hum report from the perspective of the top line. The things I'm going to look for in it are how fast are wages growing? We know they haven't kept up with inflation. To, is there continued wage pressure there for, for firms? And uh, what, what happens to payrolls? My measure of demand for labor, employees times hours times uh, pay per hour, that, that was growing at double-digit rates in previous podcasts. We've discussed that. It slowed down a little in the past couple of months. I, I want to see it continue to come down. Interesting. Well, we'll have to pay attention to those reports. But let's turn to Congress and Congress's efforts to do something, quote-unquote, on inflation. We have the latest iteration of the BBBA, which has been what you uh, referred to as the hilariously renamed uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, in the latest iteration of the CHIPS bill, now renamed the CHIPS and Science Act. So the Inflation Reduction Act, we'll start there. What is actually in this legislation that is supposed to reduce inflation? And how do you see that working? The theory of the case is that it increases, um, it decreases deficit, it increases taxes and, and, and doesn't uh, spend all of that. And so the deficit's smaller and there's less stimulus in the economy as a result. That's the theory of the case. The problem is it's tiny in, in the end. Uh, any deficit reduction that is on paper is about $300 billion over 10 years. $30 billion of deficit reduction in a $25 trillion economy is, is not going to move the needle. So it's tiny to begin with. It also doesn't begin for five years. So it's, if it's a tiny inflation reduction act, maybe in 2027. Uh, no thanks. I mean, you know, and, and everything else is going the other direction. The CHIPS Act. Billions of hundreds of billions of dollars of spending. Uh, two days ago, Congress passed a, a veterans uh, benefits expansion that could be as much as six hundred billion dollars over the, the next ten years. So between chips and the vets, you know, we're, we're looking at nearly a trillion dollars of spending not paid for in any way. That's not anti-inflation. That's Congress doing what it usually does, which is spend and promise to pay later. <laughs> Sounds like the we're on repeat here in the uh, yes. uh, in D.C. So moreover, there's been a bit of a kerfuffle over the bill's tax increases, um, but President Biden said he would not raise taxes except on the super rich. And Senator Manchin says Americans won't see a tax hike at all from this legislation. Um, could you walk listeners through the confusion here? It, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, so uh, in economics, there's a distinction between the, quote, statutory instance of a tax, who actually sends in the, the check, Pay the tax bill, and the economic incidents, who actually uh, bears the burden and whose life is made worse off because of the existence of that tax. And at the heart of this is the, the corporation income tax. So you raise taxes on corporations. Uh, that's, that's an additional cost. They have to come up with it somewhere. They can raise prices and, and, and cover the cost by passing uh, it along to consumers, or they can cut uh, future uh, wage increases, future raises, and and pass it along to their to workers, or they can cut dividends to shareholders and pass it along to the, the owners of the, of the corporation. But it's going to go somewhere. So while the statutory incidence of 
the $300 billion corporate tax in this bill is on corporations, the economic incidence is going to be somewhere. So the Joint Committee on Taxation, as a matter of regular business, not something special for this bill, when it sees a, a corporation tax increase or decrease, tries to, to uh, distribute that increase or decrease out there into the world on real people. And they concluded that about four, about half of that increase would go to people making less than $400,000, which would be in violation of the president's pledge. So the, the economics of it are that they will be made worse off by this tax policy, and they were supposed to be held harmless from all tax policies. The politics of it are, well, we didn't actually try to tax them. An accident happened. We're trying to tax corporations. And, you know, as usual, I don't think uh, there'll be much light, but there'll be a lot of heat. Democrats are claiming that Republican opposition of this bill, um, they're opposed to this bill because they don't want to help the middle class or address climate change. Uh, what do you think of these criticisms? Uh, I think that if you look at the policies in this uh, bill, one, the tax policies, I think, are are really uh, wrongheaded. I mean, these are not good tax policies. This this 15 percent book income minimum tax was something that the U.S. tried for a couple of years in the 1980s and repealed because it, it damages two things. Number one, uh, it, it damages financial reporting. Right? If, if your tax is not dependent on how you report your financial information, you start massaging the financial uh, information. That's not a good idea. You want the truth on, on the the profitability of firms. The second thing it damages is the incentives for uh, firms to do what Congress wanted them to do. The typical firm that has zero tax liability, even though it's making money, is using incentives Congress put in the code. You get to expense investments. So if you're building big warehouses and buying supply, uh, the equipment for it, you're expensing that. Or if you do R&D, you use R&D credits. It, uh, the way you get your tax liability to zero is to do virtuous things. If you then get punished for doing that, you'll stop doing virtuous things. And so we're actually going to hit the wrong firms with that minimum tax. And so I think that's a, that's going to hurt the middle class. I don't, I don't think that's helpful a bit, and, and we want to avoid that. Um, similarly, the, I think the drug pricing provisions are going to be damaging to drug innovation and um, and the introduction of you know things like generic drugs, which are supposed to keep prices down and help the middle class. So we're going the wrong way there. And then the climate provisions... I have no objection to a good climate policy from which everyone would benefit. But the administration's climate strategy doesn't make any sense. It's very, very, very risky bet on one thing, which is a, a clean electricity sector being shipped around the entire continent on a grid that's never existed. And we don't have the technologies yet to, to produce and just and, and putting that electricity in every vehicle, every house, every factory, every business. If that if that could happen on the timelines they're claiming at the cost they they want to pretend, then fine. But but it can't. And so this is a couple hundred billion dollars down payment on something that won't work. And I, I don't think that's helping anybody. Yeah, sounds about right. The Inflation Reduction Act is, of course, a reconciliation bill. So this has still got to get through Congress, obviously. Meaning, and it also only has to get a simple majority of 50 votes as we to pass the Senate, as we've talked about many times throughout other podcasts. Um, what are the chances this thing actually gets passed? Um, and if so, what's the impact? It won't get passed as it stands. I think we know that. I think we 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 have to be cognizant that they're still negotiating with with senators on what will be in it. In, in particular, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona uh, has said 
She has reservations about the book income tax. She has reservations about the carried interest tax. And so we're not done seeing the negotiations. There's also the parliamentarians sitting out there who will make judgments about what can and cannot be in a reconciliation bill, which is supposed to be budgetary in nature and not introduce new policies. And so there are a number of places in, in for example, is it just budgetary that you put a 95% tax on the domestic sales of a drug manufacturer who the secretary thinks isn't negotiating good faith? Or is that a policy? So th I don't know if that makes it through. They might pull some of those things out. And then we'll get the, the reality. You have to pass on not just the Senate, but the House. That, that's proven difficult. And um, But it, if it gets across the finish line, it's something that looks close to its current form. I, I think it has essentially zero impact on infl inflation. You know, a modest uh, uh, increase in inflation is probably the best bet. And it doesn't do much in the way on climate because it's it's really, while it's a, a, quote, historically large climate bill, it's uh, tiny in, in comparison to the problem. And the tax policy is going to be bad policy. Um, so I, it's, it strikes me that it is doing something for the sake of doing something politically, I, I, because none of those things are things that you would want to do in their current form. Yeah, I mean, the timeline is very striking to me right now because, I mean, obviously all the attention is in the Senate, but yep. you have a lot of House members running for re-election this fall and the clock's ticking. So it's it's going to be interesting to see if they can get it through the House with a narrow majority. With a narrow majority. They can't lose five votes. I mean, so or maybe four now. Um, so it's very tight in the House. And there there are more than four or five who said they wouldn't vote for anything that didn't include getting rid of the cap on deduction of state and local taxes. And so if you take that at face value, this bill can't pass the House. So okay. we'll see how it plays out. Going to be for an make for an interesting uh, rest of the summer and fall. Finally, we have the CHIPS bill. We've mentioned it a few times today um, in this podcast, which AF has written about extensively. Both Democrats and many Republicans claim that this bill is critical to ensuring adequate semiconductor production, and perhaps more notably, competing with China. Um, what is your take on the need for this legislation? I, I just don't understand this. Uh, I really don't. Um, there was, over a year ago, uh, a, a, a case made by the Defense Department for U.S. domestic production of some special chips for military hardware. I, that makes sense. I understand the security issues, things like that. That was a six or seven billion dollar proposition. This is you know, worlds away from that. And the basic argument is somehow that, okay, we have a lot of semiconductors in Taiwan. That's that's where they're being manufactured. Uh, China could invade Taiwan. Oh, my God, we're at risk. If I'm running a company and I have a manufacturing facility in a place that is exposed to a, a physical danger, whether it's an invasion or uh, some sort of natural disaster, whatever it may be, the sensible thing for me to do is to move that manufacturing somewhere else and remove that risk. So I can sell things and make money. That is their job. So I don't understand why the government has any need to step in here. Every private firm knows that that um, relations with China are, are much, much more uh, tense than they were in years past, that relying on domestic uh, Chinese um, manufacturing or imports from them is, is not a good idea. And they're, they're going to diversify their supply chains. There's nothing about that that has to be manufactured in the U.S. It just has to be manufactured in a safe place. Um, but this bill says it has to be in the U.S. And, and here's $52 billion for chip manufacturing. 
chip manufacturing, I mean, $52 billion is peanuts. I guess, are peanuts bigger or smaller than chips? Never mind. Um, but it, it, this isn't going to move the needle very much. So this seems more sort of wasteful posturing than real to me. Um, Intel was already breaking ground on a big plan outside Columbus. You know, the, the, the manufacturers, sure, if, if you want to give them $52 billion, I'm sure they'll take it. Um, but other countries are going to, you know, be available to to do that as well. We can manufacture the chips in lots of places. So that's that's the basic argument against sort of getting into this game. It really turns into a corporate welfare exercise, and I just don't see the point in doing that. The other spending in there is all sort of sort of research funding for what will supposedly be next generation artificial intelligence and quantum computing and things like that. Um, we'll see. Um, this is this is a bill that says. We, the Congress, authorize future Congresses to appropriate up to certain amounts of money. Um, will they? I don't know. Um, what will be the yield on that funding? Well, historically, the yield has not always been that high. So it, 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 this is hardly a, a absolutely necessary, solid bet uh, against China and its dominance. So um, I think there's good reasons to be skeptical. Well, Doug, thanks for uh, joining us today and breaking down all of the bills making their way through Congress and, of course, the economic outlook. Um, I'm sure we'll be back talking about this in the weeks to come. Happy to do it. Looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.